Welcome to the Right to Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I appear to be on a laptop screen with my RBP colleagues, Martin Collier. Oh, hi, Barney. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us from uh, Leafy Dorset to discuss his roaring 40-year career, plus all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism, is one Stephen William Bragg, whom we shall address in this episode as Billy. Hi, Billy. Hi, Barney. Hi, guys. Great to be here. <laughs> Hi. So we'll talk about the wonderful career that's enshrined in the Roaring 40, 14 CDs, 300 plus album tracks and rarities will be released at the end of this month. We'll also hear clips from an audio interview with Woody Guthrie's daughter, Nora. We'll talk about her dad and the 25-year-old Mermaid Avenue album. But Billy, shall we start with Wiggy and the Rod Stewart songbook in a bedroom in Barking? Yeah, it's more of a back room than a bedroom, actually. We had a, an extension on our house and the, the far end of it was a concrete floor. So you could put a drum kit on that and a, and a couple of amps and play and it wouldn't echo around the rest of the house. So that was, that was a real plus. And Wiggy's parents lived next door, so they weren't going to complain about the noise because we'd come and play in their back room otherwise. So it was quite, it was quite a good arrangement, actually. Yeah, and he, he taught me to play. Wiggy taught me to play through the Rod Stewart songbook. He showed me the, the three chords necessary to get most of it, and we were away. Well, that's a pretty good start, isn't it, to have a, to have a concrete floor? I mean, yeah. yeah. Mo- most of us are being told to shut up in our bedrooms and our early musical scratching. So that must have been an advantage. I was, the real advantage was that my parents were very social. They loved ballroom dancing. So they were out most Saturday nights at a dance or a dinner <laughs> dance or something like that. So we could all come around and make a racket. And, and the house backed onto a park, so there was no people behind us. And the bloke who lived the other side across the other side of the alley was Martin Jeff. So he never, he didn't even hear anything. So Perfect. It worked. In the end, it was pretty good. <laughs> Have you been asked to do Strictly yet, Billy? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> with Take my that legs, as a yes with my legs <laughs> <laughs> so Wiggy was a faces fanatic but at a certain point you sort of caught the folk bug a little bit didn't you I mean my understanding is that there was Simon and Garfunkel there was an introduction to Dylan's greatest hits when you were about four, 15 and then also I you know what comes to mind is the song I dreamed I saw Phil Oaks last night, obviously a take on Joe Hill. So tell us how, where folks sort of seeped into Billy's life. Well, through Simon and Garfunkel initially, they, was, were, they yeah. were my, they were my, when I was 11, I was really taken with the boxer, the boxer. It was the first song I heard that really spoke to me and emotionally gave me feelings that I couldn't explain. And then I was fortunate in that I had a, a few friends who had older sisters at the time who were, you know, 15 and 16, and Simon and Garfunkel were huge with 16-year-old schoolgirls because of their sort of vulnerable, you know, bookish kind of vibe. So it was just a matter of lugging my reel-to-reel tape recorder around to their houses and taping as many of their records as I could. So that kind of got me into the – because this is a time when folk music included singer-songwriters. And if you got – it started with Simon and Garfunkel, and then you, it's quite easy to get to Dylan through that. But when you get to Dylan – you need something else because the paradox is that while I was listening to all this, you know, American versions of English folk music, people like Martin Carfrey were playing up the road in the General Havelock pub in Ilford, and I had no idea. He was singing Scarborough Fair up there, and I'm listening to two blokes from Brooklyn singing it on. <laughs> on. So what happened was Barking Library in the early 70s got a record library, 
And although they didn't have any pop music, it's mostly classical music, they did have really good folk music. They had a lot of topic samplers, topic records, which is the premier English folk of the folk revival, 60s folk revival, traditional folk music uh, label. They put out a lot of sample albums around, you know, sea shanties, work songs, songs of love. Here's my phone. I should have turned it off. I'm so sorry. Uh, you didn't miss now. a beat there, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do there. I'll just switch it off. I'm so That's sorry. I do apologise. Im- no, it's beautiful improvisation. But, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, Paul Simon ringing up about uh, the lyrics to uh, New England. He wants to know when he's going to get some royalties. Sends them away, picking him up. So I got these these topic samplers, and I heard the Watersons, their a cappella English Yorkshire vocal group. I heard Shirley and Dolly Collins playing music that sounded like it came from, I don't know, 1500. And it just blew my mind, and it really connected me with, my own culture as well, rather than just getting it secondhand through the folk revival. You know, these were people who were really, really at the core of it. And it's never really left me. It's always been there. So as a result of that, when the minor strike happened, although I was doing the punk rock Billy Bragg chop and clang thing, I recognised in that, you know, I'd go and do gigs and there would be traditional folk singers there singing old mining songs. And I thought, mm-hmm. ah, I, I understand this. I can do this. And that's how I ended up sort of dipping my toe into folk music and, and as a consequence, found myself welcome at folk festivals, which is brilliant because the folk audience, bless them, they actively encourage you to grow old, you know, rather than wanting you to stay young. <laughs> and spent the next the next 20 years with my records, often in the folk section in record shops, and I was fine with that. I just would go in and just put Paul Brady's records behind mine and um, just, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm cool. With, I'm still cool with that. I'm still playing folk festivals to this day. <laughs> you're still cool with putting Paul Brady's records well, behind if you can find a rec- if you can find a record shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah true. I only, I only say that anecdote with people who are over 60, Barney. There's no true. point in me telling <laughs> young and so I don't know what I'm talking about. They've never drunk Mackerson. <laughs> <laughs> Since you mentioned punk, let's jump forward to punk. You formed riffraff with wiggy the aforementioned wiggy is, is wiggy still with us he is yeah he is I, saw him, I saw him just just recently in fact the last gig i did uh before lockdown was his 60th birthday and we all got together <laughs> and played dingwalls we played all the old riffraff songs dingwalls the the guest list was so long we didn't have any tickets to sell <laughs> it was kind of everybody we'd known for the last came out the woodwork it was brilliant it was really really brilliant and if, had I known we'd, uh, it was going to be the last gig for two years we'd have probably done a, a whole set again but it was a lot of fun it was really really fun playing him yeah he's totally still around and was hugely helpful in the box set because he's a bit of an archivist Wiggy and he worked with Sincere Management doing some work with them doing all their archives. So talking to Wiggy was absolutely crucial in putting the box set together because he kind of knows where the bodies are buried and he's he's the only person still around in the in, in the, the firm who was there in the day apart from me so mm. being able to talk to him was really really helpful what was it like listening back to 300 songs uh, it was good it was really really good because um i it reminded me of so many people that i played with you know dave woodhead cara tv the great cara tv a voice a playing but it also it needed to be done because you know the people who compiled the record at the record label they weren't there back in the day and they they use for reference Discogs, Spotify, and although they're really good and everything's kind of there, even among that there are some there are some oversights. So, for instance, one of my favourite Billy Bragg recordings, and it's Cara it comes back to Cara again. It's the cover we did of Just One Victory by Todd Rundgren oh. around the time of William Bloke, and 
Cara does this. There's a long extended outro where Cara does this brilliant dueling with herself on keyboard, electric piano, and Hammond organ. And I love it. It's probably my favourite little passage of my entire recorded work. And listening to it back on a train uh, going down the Connecticut River Valley in, in New York a couple of months ago, listening to the whole thing over a long weekend, we got to the end of the track and it wasn't there. It was bongos and guitars. And I was like, wow. I didn't even know there was a, another <laughs> mix. How? It, and that's what's on Spotify. So just a small detail, very important, though because I was mm-hmm. then able to go back to Steve uh, who compiled it and, uh, uh, you know, get it Find that put, version. put right. He, he didn't know. He just saw it was the right song and the right track. So it was actually crucial that I did listen to the whole thing over a very long weekend, flying to and back from Boston, Massachusetts. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? I often think it's one of those songs that does, it sort of gives you political hope in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I did, did, you know, we did record it before, you know, New Labour and all that in the depths of John Major period. It was one of those songs, come on, you know, we've got to keep going. Although we did all that stuff with Red Wedge and we didn't win and they're still there. We've got to keep going. And you need songs like that because it takes a long time. Changing the world takes a bloody long time, Barney. I'm telling you, look how old I've got trying to do it. (laughs) (laughs) but if we jump forward just a bit again one of the things i love about your story is that you join the army in may 1981 despite the fact that on elvis costello's armed forces album it said specifically and explicitly don't join so what happened i was listening to kate bush at the time (laughs) you were an army dreamer i was an army dreamer yeah if you listen to kate bush army dreamers you find that, you know, the, the message of that song is that working-class lads don't have many choices in life. Sure. And, you know, could have been a rock star. It literally says that, in that? Yeah. And that's exactly where my head was. You know, I wow. could have done that, and it came to nothing. And now here I am. I'm going to take the King Shilling and going to go off and drive tanks. So much as I loved Elvis Costello, it wasn't just that. It was, you know, it's up to you not to heed the call-up by The Clash on Sandinista had just come right. out as well. Right. But there's, you know, there's some things that Kate understands that those guys didn't quite get. So, you know, my advice is to uh, pay attention to Kate Bush. I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> you know? So two key things about Billy Bragg that, you know, when I think back to when I first heard you and first heard Life's a Riot and then saw you in 84, two things that no one, well, didn't seem like anyone had done before is that you chose to sort of sing in this kind of East End Sprechtsung kind of voice right? And two, you chose to play solo electric guitar. It was really striking. It was really different. No one sound, I didn't, no one ever has sounded like. What informed those, those decisions, those choices, Billy? Well, it's all I bloody had, Barney. <laughs> I had a guitar and I had my voice. Well, I mean, what do you... No, no, it's not, that's not true. I mean, I mean the, the, there's a couple of things going on there. Firstly, when I was writing those songs, 81, I come out of the army, 82, in that period... Punk rock was as was gone, you know. Even two tone, which had been kind of picked up the the political baton from punk rock, even that had run out of steam, and everything was going back to style over content, which was the opposite of my idea of of what pop music should be about. So I wanted to do something that was raw, that was visceral, and sometimes if you zig when everyone's zagging, 
you can really stand out. And that, I mean, the key thing there and what you just described was playing solo, but with an electric guitar. Strange yeah. though it may sound now, no one had done that really before in that sense. That was a kind of, you know, and if, if I'd have played an acoustic guitar, they'd have sent me to the folk clubs. I'd have gone down the mm-hmm. tunnel to tell the guy I wanted a gig. He wouldn't let me open for those hard bands that he had. But with an electric guitar, I could cut through the chat of the audience. I could, you know, impose what I wanted to do. And it also gave me a huge dynamic range as well with an electric guitar that I didn't have, you know. And I was kind of doing the rhythm with the electric guitar and the melody with the voice. So I could do very uh, intense, hard songs, but also very vulnerable songs. And that's the, that, I think that was the attraction. It wasn't just the, the hardcore bang, bang, bang songs, the chop and clang songs. It was also the vulnerability there of a song like Man in the Iron Mask right there at the start. You know, you bring it right back in there. Even in New England, I think it's in, it's in that lyric as well. And I think people responded to that. Yeah, and the guitar sounds so great. You cut a path for Jeff Buckley is almost the only other person I could think that just went out with an electric guitar. Yeah, yeah, and that was subsequent. So really there wasn't yeah. anybody. I mean, you know, um, mm. it was all, you know, if you were, as Morrissey said, I think if you had a, an acoustic guitar, I thought you were a folk singer. And that's truly how yeah. it was. So I didn't want to be that person. I, wanted, I still had the fire in me and I needed a way of cutting through. And the electric guitar gave me that ability. And being, you know, basically I'm a rhythm guitar player. I'm not a virtuoso on the guitar. You know, in Riff Raff, you would only hear what I was playing if I stopped. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, what's, what's that yeah. hole there? Yeah, yeah, that's braggy, yeah. So I was, you know, I always was more of a communicator than a musician. I still am, really, to be honest with you. But music was the only medium available to me in those days to get my, my, my views heard. So I had to, you know, write songs, learn to play guitar and do gigs, which is what, you know, that's how things worked in the latter part of the 20th century for young people who wanted to say something about the world. Mm-hmm. In this cover story piece that I no doubt you will recall. I remember it very well. 14th I don't only recall it, Barney. I, I actually, it's one of the objects in the, with the box set comes with a book of 40 objects from my career. Oh yeah. Yes, and I did one, notice it's, that. It's one of the objects, that cover oh. is one of the objects. It was a huge moment in my career. Because I, I mean, you know, I read the enemy avidly. It's Anton avidly. Corbin, isn't it? It's an Anton Corbin. Oh, it I is as well. Anton it. Corbin as exactly. well. So, and on top of that, I mean, it just was, you know, my mm. when I started out, my my ambitions were to make an album, tour America, and get on the cover of the enemy. That was it, really. If I could do those three things, I thought that would be, I'll, I'll be happy with that. I could leave it at that. So that was a really, a really, really a huge moment. Huge moment. Enemy cover, 14th January, 1984. Girls, Guns, Guts, Guitars, Billy Bragg's New England by Gavin Martin. And in it, apropos what we were just talking about, you t- you say to, to Gavin, I want to sing like I talk, so I'm never going to be a great singer. I don't think I have to sing in tune all the time for the lyrics to come across. So you're sort of, you know, you're sort of setting out your mm. stall there in a way, aren't you? I am. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing you in Cardiff. Some, I think it was in 1984. And I think the opening, I think it was Brendan Croker, who's yeah, just yeah. passed away, was opening yeah. it. And then it was Ted Hawkins. Ted, yeah, I remember that tour really well. Yeah, it was a great yeah, tour. Yeah. And it was just, it was just electrifying. I yeah. saw you a couple of other times too, but I just, that really sticks in my mind. Yeah. One of the things I really liked about Gavin's piece was he did really, really get it. I mean, I had a, I had a quick look at it the other day and he, he talks about my autonomous drive and frenzy. That's such a great phrase there, you know. And he also calls it, uh, my music, a, a fervent and earnest sort of white soul music. 
which I I, I wish we'd have, I'd have got a tattoo of that if I'd have at the time I was in it. <laughs> but having said that, but having said that, he kind of doesn't quite get the vulnerable thing because he also says, "Don't you feel embarrassed and compromised in singing a song like that?" I think he's talking about the Saturday Boy, you know, the honesty of that. So he doesn't quite. Even even for someone like Gavin, who uh, totally understood when we, I mean, you know, he talks in there also. They, the enemy put my album at number three in the albums of the year behind Swordfish Trombones and Punch the Clock. Punch the Clock. Yeah, yeah. Which, to me, I mean, above Thriller. I mean, come on. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, uh, this you is were doubly, better than Thriller. You were is, better than Michael this Jackson. Is, this is doubly weird because the enemy were the last people to get on board. You know, Melody Maker were in there right to the start. Adam Sweet, you know, I must give him his due. Yes. He was the person who, who first gave me my break. It was his uh, review of my cassette that got me the publishing deal with Chapel Music that led to the recording of Life's Alright. And then me, Melody Maker, they hadn't put me on a cover, but they'd given me a feature. Sounds had reviewed the album when it first came out in July, 83, and it took the re-release of the album on GoDiscs in October for the NME really to get on board. So for it to suddenly turn like that, it was a huge moment in my career, that front cover. And let's not forget the mushroom biryani, Billy. Oh, yeah, the mushroom biryani, that was an important moment as well. Yeah, that was... Um... Does the box set come with, like, a little portion of it? <laughs> that would be good, wouldn't it? That you would missed be good. a trick there, Billy. Yeah, I, mean, I did. I'd, I'd buy it if that was the <laughs> 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 Or just a little va- a sort of delivery voucher or something. That's yeah. right, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, but maybe we should have done the uh, the competition for the people who are buying it from the... From the uh, the Billy Bragg online shop, which you get to come and have a mushroom biryani with me or something like that. <laughs> or I deliver one to your house or something like that. <laughs> that would be co- that would be top, wouldn't it? It would be. I love you. I am the milkman of human kindness only. An extra pint. That's Billy Bragg from, uh, I suppose it's a mini-LP, although it must admit that nowhere on the sleeve does it say that. And the, the LP is called uh, Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy, Billy Bragg. And I have to admit it was Billy Bragg who bought me a mushroom biryani, <coughs> dear, oh dear, mushroom biryani earlier on this evening. This is corruption. This is the kind of savage corruption which needs to be exposed in the world of popular music. On the homepage, obviously, you are the featured artist, and we're going to jump forward to 91 and you were one of the very lucky artists who was subjected to the who the hell experience by tom hibbert at q and i'll just read this is just classic hibbert beneath the gray leadership quote unquote of little johnny major billy bragg goes forth amongst us still ranting about safe sex and other politically correct items worthy and right on to the last barricade of recorded time a woody guthrie figure for the 90s or just a minor nuisance <laughs> it's, it's, it's classic i think a minor nuisance it's not a bad thing I'm still, i still have that role culturally i think a minor nuisance i'm still i'm still singing about uh, sexuality i'll just tweak the lyrics a little bit now to make it more tra- friendly but yeah i'm still i'm still batting on that wicket tom if you're out there mate and you want to you want to have a, a second round maybe i should do who the hell does tom hibbert think he is maybe i should go and interview him well he is, Sadly he's, gone to, he's gone to the great rock critics oh has he, oh, he i'm has. sorry to hear that yeah and i was really sorry to hear gavin passed away as well I wrote that yes. enemy piece but it was really really sad gavin martin passing away because he was still firing wasn't he in all yeah. cylinders yeah, yeah. yeah. there you go Absolutely. such happens but yeah 
Yeah, we, we've, we've actually, Jasper and I have been putting together a Tom Hibber anthology, which is going to be coming out in late February next year. And there are a number of who the hell's in that. And you probably may be relieved to know that yours isn't one of them. I'm so but glad. Because I, I, is Jimmy Savile in there? No, for, for sort of fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Maybe not, the, Jimmy. No, no, no. That was no. quite an early discussion that we had that one. Yeah. I bet, yeah. <laughs> I love what you say about minor nuisance. Because I, mean, I think when one reflects back on these 40 roaring years, I think sort of somehow you've managed to, I don't know, just a combination of talent, charm, humour and lots of other things you somehow managed to get away with being a minor sort of lefty nuisance if you like (laughs) and I, i think that's i think it's because you don't get into massive like fights you try to stay i don't know just kind of try to keep the humor even when confronted with you know bnp candidates and i i think that's so important in these polarized times yes That's true. That is very true. A sense of humour really does help. But there's something else going on as well, Tom. I mean, you know, when I play live now, a key song in my set is There Is Power in the Union, which is a song I wrote 39 years ago during the minor strike. Some of the people who are singing that song, and it's a peak in my set, I mean, the audience Mm. really get behind it. Fists in the air. I would imagine, you know, quite a number of people who are singing that song weren't born when I wrote it. But they have experience of being on a picket line in the last year or so. And so they've been become aware of my music and are drawn to the to the gig and stuff like that. So it isn't just about me hanging on. Some of the things that I've written about are still as relevant. As I say, sexuality, now that I've tweaked it to, you know, just because you're they, and if you stick around, I'm sure we can find the right pronouns. You know, I get trans people, parents of trans kids getting in touch all the time saying, you know, I came to your gig, I wasn't expecting that, but I really felt seen and I appreciate that. So it's always worth trying to keep connected with what's going on and not just let it fall back into some sort of nostalgia thing. I'm not, I'm not, you know, in some ways I stopped playing between the wars in the late nineties because I felt my audience were starting to feel a bit nostalgic for Margaret Thatcher and, you know, the good old days, the minor strike and all that. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be part of that. There's more interesting stuff going on here. Try this. This is called take down a union Jack. This is about yes. identity, about mm. BNP, about Scotland. Have a go at this. So, you know, you've also, cause you've also got to try and play, you know, touch on issues that your audience don't want to talk about, you know. And obviously for an audience like mine, talking about national identity, Englishness, patriotism in the late 90s was a tough one for them. But I I felt it was an important thing to do. Mm. I mean, it's interesting to me that in that Tom Hibbert piece, the term political correctness comes up. And I was interested to hear from you how you kind of deal with that whole, because in some ways it feels like a sort of manufactured scapegoat to mm. to keep talking about well you know political correctness is a, is a get out clause for people to not talk about things that matter yeah. but you you kind of keep talking about them so what mm. how do you approach that it's deflection isn't it it's a, it's trying to accuse you of having other motives for bringing up these kind of subjects. I mean, people don't really talk about cl- political correctness anymore, but they surely do talk about woke. woke. Yeah, 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 woke. And I mean, it. woke woke is even more insidious because you can put anything in there. I mean, what the, what is, you know, wokeness? The average American doesn't know what wokeness is. I saw a poll recently in the New York Times where they asked people what the most important Americans, what the most important issues were. 1% went for woke and transgender issues, 1%. Mm. You know, they're asking people to name it. They're not giving people a list. They're asking people to name what it was. So I think, you know, it's it's 
always been part of the 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 rights attempts to turn themselves into the victims saying you're doing this you're not doing this because of the issue that you're talking about uh, you're doing this because you're you know you you're trying to make me feel bad it's a, it's totally totally about all about deflection and for someone like myself who whose politics have always been about accountability it's it's very very frustrating mm. yeah yeah, I mean, and the king of sort of deflection, of course, is Boris Johnson. Oh, yeah. And we thought it would be fun just to talk about the encounter you had with him at Glastonbury in, in, in 2000. We've uh, actually extracted a clip from that, which is just pure. It just is absolutely what you're just talking <laughs> about. So, Jasper, can we just hear Boris trolling Billy in 2000? This is a capitalist extravaganza. A feast of humbug and hypocrisy in which lefties like Billy Bragg pretend they're doing it for the good. When oh, Boris says the so words humbug and hypocrisy, it's time to switch off money. These people oh, he's are gone off the deep end. He's far off the deep end. This is Billy Bragg and Boris Johnson reporting from Glass. <laughs> Glastonbury indeed in my defence in my defence he was merely the editor of the spectator at the time had I known (laughs) what was coming what was coming yeah I did I did this programme he did a Radio 4 programme called Why Do People Hate the Tories and I was trying to explain to him it was their lack of connection with rule and I did say to him in the context of that I bet you've never even been to Glastonbury have you and he said no I haven't and then the BBC got in touch after it was broadcast I said well listen we're thinking about bringing Boris down to Glastonbury do you want to take him around the site. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. So, yeah, I, I had that rather strange run in with him. But, yeah, it was all there, scarily, when I look back now. The yes. whole thing, yeah. you know, there were no parties. And if there were parties, all the rules were followed. That was all there back in the day. Yes. Absolutely. All the groundwork's being laid there for him to mm. kind of, you know, all yeah. the clowning, all the <laughs> fooling around, all of that for him yeah. to just be quote-unquote, lovable Boris. It's really... Oh, I loved it. At Glastow as well, people just loved him because he'd been on, uh, you know, that's... Have uh, um, I got news for you? Have I got news for you, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Everyone, everyone loved him. It was really scary. It was really scary what came afterwards. Mm. I mean, on the back of that, I mean, it is I mean, fascinating to me that you wrote this book, The Progressive Patriot, in, in 2006, picking up from what you're saying before. Because in a way, what you're saying is, you know, the, the left are, are not speaking to... They're sort of denying feelings. There's something wrong with loving your country, right? Yeah. And and so you've you've argued in many different ways that it's important for the left to reclaim a love of of country. You don't have to be, you know, jingoistic or xenophobic no. to love your country. And again, that's part of the polarization. If you if you love Britain, then you're you're a sort of John Bull beer swilling Nigel Farage and and if you don't you're you're a sort of traitor yeah I'm like, you know you think the left who know that there are like you know 57 varieties of socialism would understand there's more than one type of patriotism there's lots of different types of patriotism you know there's you know someone like myself who I'd like to think of as a progressive patriot you know my my patriotism is based in values that the country's allegedly upholds, you know, the tolerance and respect for the rule of law and in the sense that nobody is above the law, you know, the old Magna Carta thing, rather than everyone's got to be under the law. And then there's those ones who who believe just in symbols, you know, what you might call the illustrious patriot who thinks of the, you know, land of open glory. Then you've got the tribal patriot who is the, you know, the racist end who thinks you can't be English if you're not white. But in between, there's lots of others. I mean, there's a lot of civic patriotism out there, you know, people who whose commitment to their community 
and their sense of belonging to their community is just, you know, something that's a de- a, a definitely about love of country. And then in between, there's all those passive patriots who don't really think about it all the time, they stand up for the national anthem, but it's not really, you know, something they do. It's not just one thing, and it's unfortunate that traditional patriotism is always, uh, dis- you know, it's always flag, faith, and family. That's just one. That's just one part of the, you know, in the end, if Englishness is about anything, it's got to be about space, not race. Everything that's in the space called England is part of it, whatever it is, however long it's been there, whatever part of it. The glorious stuff, the dreadful stuff, the rainy stuff, the sunny stuff. And we just have to sort of make, you know, people feel they belong to it. And that mm. belonging in many ways is more important than patriotism. If you have a sense of belonging, and then you can really start to relax about where you are and who you are. And that people, people should be able to do that without having to define themselves on someone else's metric. At the risk of breaching RBP's impartiality rules, <laughs> um, <laughs> Mark, do you want to ask Billy any questions about the Labour Party today? I don't know. Um, how do you feel about the Labour Party today, Billy? <laughs> Underwhelmed might be a good word. Right. Um, wishing they would uh, you know, step up a little bit more and, and explain to us how they're going to change people's lives to the better. Rather than, you know, I'd like to think they're hiding their light under a bushel and they've got some great ideas they're going to whip out closer to the election. But I do worry they're just trying to take the ground that the Tories used to. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I, I've been a member of the Labour Party since 1974, left in 2003 over the Iraq War, rejoined in 2010. I was a Corbyn sceptic from the word go because I remember the people around him from back in the the early ages, and how they were basically a front for really nasty Trotskyist entrists a lot. I mean, were you a Corbyn supporter? Did you? Did yeah, I was, yeah, because I think the thing that most important to me is that the will of the, the party members should be followed. And I, I think the the problem with the candidates that were on, had been put up before, they, were, they just didn't inspire people, you know. Much as I love Ed Miliband, he didn't really, you know, he wasn't really that kind of inspiring. Whereas Corbyn had something else. Corbyn had a, a promise about him. He wasn't flawless. You know, I, I had disagreements with him about issues over constitutional reform. It just didn't seem to be on his agenda at all, which is really, really disappointing. But in the end, he just wasn't the right guy. I mean, he, you know, he kind of was the accidental leader, wasn't he? He got yes. in there, you know, he had no plan. He had no, not like someone like Blair who'd planned for a long time to get in there and, and do something. And so from a standing start, you know, with the headwinds of particularly of Brexit, I think he was always, you know, going to have a hard ride. But if you look at what happened in the first election, was it 2017? 2017, thank you. Everything before the pandemic is all kind of all in the same. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of support there behind an idea that he represented. I don't think it was particularly him, but it was the idea that he could represent an alternative. Yeah. But, the you know, Johnson and the Brexit headwind, I don't think any Labour leader could have won yeah. that. Maybe it wouldn't have been such a landslide for Johnson, but I don't think any Labour leader could have won against that. I mean, as someone whose mother's Jewish and therefore is Jewish, I felt the virulent anti-Semitism of sections of the left very, very powerfully, and I felt that Corbyn never disavowed that. He didn't deal with it, that's most certainly true. He could have dealt with it a lot more quickly. I think the problem is I think that he was anti-Semitic. In the, in, in a, he's a political, he was a political anti-Semite. His dislike of the state of Israel turned into a, a suspicion of Jews. Well, you know, you know, Mark, there is a whole debate over whether or not criticising the state of Israel is anti-Semitism or not. The IHRA says it's not. 
I agree. Uh, I, mean, yeah, I criticize yeah. the state of Israel. It's yeah, exactly. The way, it's the way he did it and the people he surrounded himself by. Well, that, you know, that's, uh, again, that makes it more complicated, doesn't it, rather than saying that he himself is an anti-Semite. I don't think he's an anti-Semite, but I understand that, uh, that some of the things that he did, some of the optics of the things he said were genuinely offensive to the, to the Jewish community, and that's wrong. It shouldn't have happened. You know, I felt it a bit too, you know, my, my, my three sons are Jewish because their mum is Jewish, and I, and I felt it too. Now, it doesn't mean it's... It was a reality, but I felt yep. that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had some really heavy falling outs with the Chris Williamson people because yes. they are trying to get them to understand that you don't actually have to say something that's anti-Semitic to offend people. You know, it's the fact that you're not willing to accept their position and that 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 very just that aspect of it. So I get, yeah, that's the great irony uh, mm-hmm. of being Billy Bragg. I, for one time, I was being called anti-Semitic because I was supporting Corbyn, and then I was a traitor because I didn't support Corbyn enough. So it's kind of like sure. yeah, well, that's, very, that's, very thin ice that, politics today. That, yes. That's and that's the left view as well. I mean, well, it's not just the left. When I was on tour last time, I was a fascist because I was asking people to show proof of that they were clear of COVID to come into the gigs. Right. It's just words that people throw about. Now I'm a, I'm a misogynist on the trans thing because I don't I don't agree with J.K. Rowling. It's got nothing to do with misogyny. Yeah, People sure. throw those words about all the time. And if, if anything, it's got worse. You know, I think mm. social media has made that back and forth even worse. So I completely agree. Yeah. I, I absolutely completely agree. Billy, you, yeah. must be asked, you must be asked this all the time. Would you ever go into politics? Or are you too sane? People like me. Barney, you know, I've, 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 spent, I've spent years. I've spent years becoming a beloved entertainer. You know, if I wanted people to hate me, I'd get a job uh, as a parking meter attendant or something. Yeah. If I yeah. wanted to, if I wanted to be, sure. uh, I mean, you know, the, the thing is, politics changes obviously hugely, and the way it's delivered and the way it's discussed has changed incredibly as well. But in the end, if you've got some principles you're trying to articulate, so long as you're not clinging to an ideology that's clearly uh, past its sell-by date, and I, I think I talk much more now, you know, gigs about accountability, about em- empathy you know, about the war and cynicism, those kind of things. Mm. I'm talking about this kind of stuff. I think I've, you know, more or less have the same politics as I always did have. But these, you know, things come along that you you can't ignore. You can't just turn your back and say, oh, well, you know, I, I refuse to accept there was any problem with anti-Semitism during the Corbyn years because you can't, you know, and I know people who do say that. I've, you know, I've run into them online. Sure. You know, the controversy around Roger Waters at yes. the moment, you know, is... sure. You know, I was at Glastonbury and I happened to tweet, you know, Roger, someone mentioned him and I just tweeted, Roger Waters is a crank, you know, <laughs> you know and, and, and then as a result of the attacks I got, and I was trending for a little while. You know that horrible feeling when your eyebrows itch, when you think, oh, my God, I'm trending. <laughs> I'm trending in the UK. Yeah. So if you're going to trend for something like that, I'm all for it. What I love you know? is that you said, I, I, I happened to tweet, Roger Waters is a crank, as if somehow... <laughs> It just happened without no. any agency. No, no, what, no, no. What happened was, there was that there was that film they wanted to show at Glastonbury that implied that, yes. that implied that there was a plot, a Jewish plot behind what was going on, and that's just totally out of order. That's utterly unacceptable. And the festival refused to show it, and I said, "Yeah, rightly so too." Mm-hmm. And they started having a go at me about that. I tried to explain to them why I thought it was that someone brought up. The Roger Waters thing, and I'm just like, oh, don't go there. Is Twitter important to you as a w- as a means of communicating with your audience? I wish it wasn't there, Mark. Right. I really wish it wasn't there. I wish I didn't have to use it because I think it's 
for people's mental health, not mine. I have to say this. You know, I've been I've been being heckled since you know Barney showed you that enemy cover. I've been dealing with hecklers, sure, and I'm used to it. I'm used yeah, to yeah. people not like you know Tom Ibbett's article. Mm-hmm. You know, that's more or less like what it's like being online now. But if you're a civilian, no disrespect to civilians, and you're not used to that, the the thing it can do to your mental health. Yeah. If you think if you think Twitter is the world, Twitter ain't the world. Twitter's a little little corner of mm. of the community, and then the people that are listening to you are a minuscule part of that community, and then the people who are having a go at you are an even smaller part yeah. of that community. As long as you can keep that in perspective, yeah. because if that wasn't true, and if all the virulence on Twitter was in the real world, I wouldn't be able to walk down the street without people spitting on me, mm. as it is. You know, yeah. I, I, I get into sometimes people approach me and talk to me about issues very most often trans rights, and I'm happy to have a chat with them about that, and we agree to disagree. Yeah. But that happens once in a blue moon. So you, you, you know, if Musk drives it into the ground, well, well I'm good. good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, what I mean, I'll be yeah. double happy because I won't have to deal with all that anymore. And I do have to do it because, as you as you mentioned there, it's it's a way of talking to your audience. Yeah, above I mean, and beyond above and beyond mm. all the flack, you know. I mean, in the old days, I had to rely on the enemy or the melee maker writing about me. Sure, someone who I who was into me finding that if I'm not on the cover, looking at it, reading about it. Mm. Now you can you can you know get straight into their timeline. So in that sense, it's 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 valuable. Yeah, but Twitter has become a, a nasty place since since Musk took over and mm-hmm. started allowing the the dodgy people back in. I yeah. mean, you know, the ADL was one hundred percent right in yeah. taking him on. You know, and everybody else that's taking him on, it really is a, a sewer now. Yeah, I, I refuse. To, I've I've refused to engage with Twitter completely. I mean, I, I just there's so much about it that I find repellent. You know, but anyway, anyway. Well, you know, um, forgive me, but I, you know. I I do have some opinions that I do want to air. So, yeah, <laughs> do you think that because you're saying you don't want to go into politics, people like? Do you think that you have a bigger, better platform as a result? You know, through music and through you know writing via whatever medium it is that you write, Twitter or that's a, that's an arguable thing. But I think politics is too important to be left to politicians. Mm. Everybody should chip in, you know, and you shouldn't if you you know if you've got something to say about it, you shouldn't you know have to become a politician in order to justify expressing no. your opinion. That's one of the old put-downs. Mm. You know, well, if you want to talk like that, why don't you run, run for office? I'm like, yeah. well, you know, that's yeah. that's not my job. And and I come from a period uh, in the late 20th century where pop music was the only social media available, and it always was a call-out medium. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. whether you're talking about Elvis Presley complaining that his girlfriend's a hound dog, or, you know, the White Stripes saying a seven-nation army isn't going to hold me back from fighting people that are uh, saying terrible things about me. It's always been a call-out medium. And young people always want to do a bit of finger-pointing. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that it seems to be that young young people are more interested in accountability than they are in freedom of speech. And I think that's a really interesting development because freedom of speech online can very often turn out to be just a license for abuse. Yes. You know, in the old days, I would get the occasional abusive letter in the NME. Someone would say something really rotten about me, you know, and Mm -hmm. they'd put it in the NME. But that was edited. It wasn't like 40 of them all coming in the same day. Yeah. It was one off and it'd sting. It would sting like a a wasp or something for a while, but it would pass. And the 
the reviews, although they were the, you know, might, might make a comment they didn't like what I was doing, they weren't make, you know, weren't abusive, mm-hmm. you know, and there weren't loads of them. You know, one of the paper would like it, the other paper might, you know, the album might go there, okay, it might not go there. And so that that was all bearable. But now it's so, there's so much personal abuse online. I mean, you had women particularly. Yeah. Totally unacceptable. So the need for accountability to say there is a line here that you mm-hmm. cannot cross both as as individuals for us talking online, but also by the, the, the platforms themselves to say, no, yeah. I'm sorry, this this type of – this is abusive. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you, you can't say this. As, you know, there are some things you can't say, as Lawrence Fox has just found out. The other yes. Week. There <laughs> are. You can't. Yeah. Freedom, of, freedom of speech Ooh. doesn't mean you can say anything you like. Absolutely. It means, it, it means you can yeah. express any opinion you like. Yeah. But the way you say it, if you say it, and, you know, he was criticising what Ava. Sadiq. No, Ava. Uh, oh, uh, right. the, yeah, the woman. Oh, who sorry. He, yeah, the woman yeah, before the ULES thing. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He could have said, look, I thought what she said was wrong, and this is why I think it's wrong. Yeah. You know, she's she's showing no uh, compassion to men. and their, He could have said all that, and it would have been enlightening. Fine. Instead, he played, he played the player instead of the ball. And right. Although mm. music journalism did do that sometimes, you did have that sometimes. It wasn't constant and everybody, yeah. you know, 10 people, 15 people, you know, there were no pylons in right. those days. So that's, to me, it's the, the effect of social media on people's uh, mental health is something that we really, really should consider in what we allow, in the way we allow debates to develop on there. I mean, yeah. you should tolerate everything but intolerance, basically. That's Amen to exactly, that. Yeah. Exactly. I love the football metaphor, Billy, from a West Ham fan. <laughs> yeah. <Sure. laughs> Happy and days, eh? Are, are you missing? De- are you missing Declan Rice? Yes. Well, no. I think we we seem to be doing okay without him. Don't we? We've made do. some good. We've made some good signings. I'm feeling quite positive. Uh, you yeah. know, we've got a bit of silverware last year. And yes. good luck to Declan. Good luck to him. I say because you know he was a great servant to the company and uh, to the club, rather. And I hope he <laughs> goes <company>. on. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, I I didn't used to have shares in West Ham. It was the one thing. So it is a company. <laughs> it was. It, not anymore. No, not anymore. They took it back. But I used to go and see my accountant every year. They, uh, Pete Jenner made me go and see the accountant every year so he could tell me what was happening. Not much. And he, con- he always tried to get me to buy shares. And I'm like, really, honestly? He was a lovely guy as well. He was a lovely, lovely guy. And uh, he just was trying to get me to buy shares. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, he said, there must be something. I said, all right, get me some shares in West Ham United. So for a while... <laughs> I was in the shareholding <laughs> democracy around the around the hammers, but uh, brilliant, yeah. Not that it did him any good. More than Declan Rice, then. Do you miss Upton Park? Yeah, I do. I haven't been to the new stadium, but Upton Park was so great to be mm. up and close and personal. That's yes. how you want football, isn't it? You want to yeah, you want to hear them breathing. You want to hear you want to see them sweating. You want to see them when they come over for a throw in or a free kick. You want to be able to tell them something. You know, and I don't think you do that. You want to be able to abuse them. No, encouragement, encouragement. (laughs) Encouragement, guys. Strangers in my seat. How unsad my football dreams. But I was always the last one, the last to get chosen. When my classmates picked their teams.
Can we go back to books, Billy, for a, yeah. for a sec? Because we talked about uh, The Progressive Patriot. After Faber published your lyrics, As a Lover Sings in 2015, you wrote this magnificent book about skiffle, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. And as part of your research, you got in touch with Mr. Collier, who's on this Zoom grid. And we're featuring a lovely piece you wrote, Martin, on your Five Things I've Seen and Heard blog called Billy Bragg Comes to Tea, May 19th, 2017. <laughs> so um, do, you want to, do you want to share your memory of Billy getting in touch and coming to tea? <laughs> I think we'd, we'd, we'd met once before because Billy had done a BBC documentary on Skiffle and, and there was a kind of evening at the Arts Theatre. But I got this email out of the blue which says, I'm doing a book that starts with your dad's record collection and ends with the day the Sex Pistols play the 100 Club, the night before your uncle plays it. <laughs> and it was so great to get that email because I had always thought the story of, of my dad, Bill, and his brother, Ken, and their kind of combination to, to help the birth of Skiffle was a kind of, it wasn't a forgotten chapter, but it had never been done very well. Your dad named Skiffle, didn't he? He did name Skiffle, yeah. But Preet Frame's Restless Generation was very good as a sociological Great book. book. But it, uh, yeah, really good book. And it, but it didn't actually get into the kind of nitty gritty of the story. And, and the story was often told quite erroneously. So I was thrilled that Billy was interested in, in writing this. And I had rec I'd recently done a book about my uncle with Mike Poynton and Ray Smith, um, which was a kind of oral history uh, of that whole period. So the story's in there, but it's not told in that way because, you know, it's a set of interviews. It's like Rushman. Everyone's got their own different take on everything. And as Mark said, more schisms than the <laughs> British Communist Party. It's like, you know, there's a Chris Barber schism over here. Lonnie Donegan over here. Lonnie Donegan is, uh, as uh, Leon Trotsky. Yeah. The great traitor. The great traitor. <laughs> Which is often how the story... Donegan. <laughs> yeah, but it was how often the story was Lonnie portrayed. Trotsky, I think and it's not really... Lonnie Trotsky. <laughs> it's not, it's not sorry, really... Mine, sorry, No, no, it's just... It's, it's irresistible. It, 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 indeed. It was always told in this way, as a, and there was a bigger and better story within it. And uh, it turned out Billy was the person to tell this, partly because you're a musician too, Billy, as well as someone who can write, but also you kind of had a passion to do the story and to do it properly. So, I, I mean, I, I know that you know, my dad and Ken, I think, would be absolutely thrilled with the book that came out of that, Roots, Radicals, Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. But, I, you know, if anyone's interested in that period of sociologically and musically, I think this book just delivers. Fantastic. Well, I think, I think you know, you kind of hit right on it there, Martin, about what the problem of all the books were. Because although the book that you, you wrote, The Oral History, was a really brilliant book, the story of Skiffle had only ever been told by people who were there at the time. So, you know, uh, 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 Chas McDavid wrote a really good book. Yeah. Uh, Mike DeWee wrote a pretty good book as well. But it was kind of like I was here and this is what happened. What I wanted to read was the, the social, you know, the what else was going on there, where it come from, how, what the, you know, a more of a, a broad story of it. And so I think the, the, the key thing about me writing the book was I was born in 1957. So I was born not just at peak skiffle, but I was the first, the first generation who didn't have any skifflers in it. 
You know, right. if you if you think all yeah. the way up to up to Doctor Feelgood, they yeah. were started out. You know, they started out as skiffle. So that's just before that's seventy four, seventy five. Yeah. So my generation had just as enough distance to see the wood for the trees and yeah. be able to see the whole. You know, skiffle and try. I wanted to put it in its context because well, I believe I believe two really really important things. One. It's the first generation of British teenagers and their story yeah. needs to be told. And secondly, your dad and your uncle played a really big part in introducing the guitar into British pop music. Yes, I remember part, you saying about the guitar thing because that, yes, that, that had not really been a thing in British music. Martin, do you want to read the, bit, the wonderful couple of paragraphs that you quote from Billy's book oh. in that piece. I've got it here, so I'm happy to do it. I thought you might have it in front no, of no, you. No, no, no. Because it's just, please. it's so great. Lonnie Donegan takes centre stage in a photograph from the period, playing guitar and singing into the mic. To his right, Alexis Corner plays mandolin and Ken Collier strums the guitar slung across his knee. To his left, Bill Collier, Martin's dad, sits playing a washboard while Chris Barber plucks a stand-up bass. I mean, that's some lineup, isn't it? <laughs> a young that? Pete Townsend was there to witness this paradigm shift. The future powerhouse guitar player of The Who was just a schoolboy when he saw Ken Collier's Jasmine at Acton Town Hall in West London. Townsend was shocked by the primitive nature of the jazz men and their crowd. I was used to the tidy music of my dad's era. It was messy. He, Ken Collier, was messy. The band were messy and the audience were messy. And then, Billy, you write, that's a quote, obviously, from Townsend. In scenes of seeming chaos that would not have been out of place in a punk gig 25 years later, Townsend described how the men were drunk, wore cheap, rough duffel coats, some had wet themselves... <laughs> And instead of wearing wristwatches, some had alarm clocks hanging around their necks. I love that. Yeah. Flavor. That's amazing. It's an amazing flavor, image, isn't it? Flavor, flavor before flavor, yeah. flavor. I mean, yeah. is that, it, yeah. you, you didn't just make all that up. No, no, Townsend <laughs> told me that. I know that documentary. Fantastic. It was actually a documentary about Ken. It was about Ken Collier yeah. I made for BBC4. But the key thing he says in that, and this is the real moment where it happens, he says, what happened is I watched the banjo player come from the back of the stage to the front of the stage with a guitar and take control of the gig. And at right. that moment, I knew this was the future. I knew that my old man's music was over and this was where we were going from here on. It's an absolutely key moment in the development, not only of British pop, but of American pop too, because Skiffle is the nursery for the British invasion of America yeah, in 63, 64, 65. You could see Malmsteen in your crystal ball. <laughs> I could. I could see it all. I could see it all coming. It was all there. Yeah, everyone. It, all the way to the stars. It's a really interesting convergence at that point. They, there's a generation who are young who've come back from war. My dad had been on the youngest person in his platoon on D-Day and had worked their way up through through Germany. So when he, he comes back and moves into the family home and his dad says, you know, clean your shoes or do that. And he just walks out. He said, that's not, no one can tell me what to do. I've, yeah. you know, I've seen my friends die. <laughs> I don't need, and they come back and, and Britain is great. It's rationing till 1950 and, and 54. 54. 54. Wow. Rationing, yeah. rationing ends the months before Donegan records Rock Island line. Wow. 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 <laughs> and suddenly, and, and, they, and just through this thing where Bill has been right, you know, as a, as a late teenager was writing to Americans to get them to send records to him, 
tells his brother not to touch his records while he's off to war, comes back, finds Ken has played all these records. Not only that, has actually taken up the trumpet and is pretty good at it. That there's a kind of, you know, technicolor starts creeping in around the edges. Yeah. And, and the mysticism and exoticism of America to a late 50s schoolboy is just a, you know, a beacon, some yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. wonderfulness, yeah. you know. So and I have to say that Billy's book captures that fantastically well. Well, one of the uh, one one of the guys I interviewed, uh, an old uh, skiffle that lives down in Brighton now, he said to me that back then the average skiffle kid felt they had more in common with an African-American sharecropper in Mississippi than they did with their own father. Yeah. yeah, because their their, right. their parents couldn't understand what they were into at all. Why were they into this ridiculous, yes. scrappy music? It's like yeah, no, no, you know. If I remember rightly, Bill, your dad had a certain time every day when he could play his records. That was it. He just had that that time in the house. He couldn't play any whenever he liked. Just a certain time. Everyone put yeah. up with it, and then he had to put them away. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? To think it how, is. and from that, the whole, the whole, you know, British teen experience kind well, of flows it's, it's from interesting that, that generation. Just, just to give Lonnie his due, although he and Ken obviously fell out. Although, you know, as <laughs> Chris Barber said to me, he said we were all such stupid young boys; we didn't need to have fallen out. But, but oh, it's yeah. kind of, you know, you had Alexis Corner in the band, who's the kind of Stones' godfather. You had Chris Barber, who brought over Muddy Waters and Sister Rosetta Tharp and all of these American musicians for those tours. And you've got Lonnie Donegan, who is the showman, you know. And yeah. without Lonnie, really, this probably doesn't happen. No, it's in really the way true. That it I, met, I, I met him a few times, and uh, he did say on all of those three occasions that phrase, all roads lead to Lon. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought at the time it was a really, uh, you know, a really kind of, Cheeky thing to say. Egotistical to way to But right in the book, you know, I have to no, say. Although it. in the story, I think your Uncle Ken deserves a Hollywood movie. When you say Technicolor, <laughs> Ken's story, obviously your, your dad would have a bit part in it. He'd be part of it. But it would. It, it's an incredible story. You know, yeah. he, he wanted to go to New Orleans. So in order to get to New Orleans, the only way he could think of going to New Orleans in the early 50s was to join the Merchant Navy and hope yeah. he got a boat that went to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And... <laughs> It, did three years prayer, old, it, it took him, took him three Brilliant. years to finally get one. <laughs> that's just the start of it. That's the start of it. And then he know. gets that, and then he gets deported. Oh, first well, he, gets he gets there. <laughs> first he gets put into prison, right? Yeah. But this well, is no, this first is, before that he plays with all these black guys who yeah. think, "Hold on, <laughs> who's this twenty-year-old white kid who play, who can play and sit on yeah. the bandstand with?" Percy Humphreys and George Lewis yeah. and all these people. It's just- he goes. Not only does he go to the mountaintop, but he sits in with the gods. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> and then he gets thrown in prison, right? Then he comes home, and not only has he played with George Lewis, so he's kind of like, you know, the trad jazz Moses, but he's also going to talk to you about Lead Belly. Yeah. And how many, how many other people in London at that time have been in jail in Louisiana like Lead Belly had? Yeah, yeah, yeah you exactly. Know, only exactly. can. So it's such a, yeah. a, an amazing story. It's an amazing and, story. and uh, you know, it... To, at the time, when I thought of it in my head, how it all happened, it looked like an Ealing comedy. But really, <laughs> it's not really like that. It's an no. amazing Technicolor story. It would make a great story. Ealing Blues <laughs> Club comedy, right? <laughs> oh, that's very good. That is very good, Barney. That's the, that's the whole thing. A stranger lying on a barroom floor He drank so much he could drink no more so he fell asleep with a troubled brain 
dream that you rode on a downbound train. Listen, uh, if, you, if you've been listening to this episode and you've enjoyed it, you are going to want to buy not only Billy's Roots, Radicals and Rockers book, but you are obviously going to want to rush out on the 27th of October to buy The Roaring Forty, 1983 to 2023. We're going to go back in your career to 1995 billy because the week's new audio interview is with someone you certainly knew and probably still know well nora guthrie and mark's going to just tell us a bit about nora guthrie and why we are featuring this audio this week and in this podcast yeah this is january 99 chris smith interviewing nora guthrie and uh, it's about her setting up the woody guthrie archive discovering boxes of old paperwork that belonged to her, her, her dad, preserving, cataloguing it, setting up travelling exhibit with the Smithsonian, to even taking the exhibit to Woody's home state of Oklahoma. But she also talks about this whole new wave of people who are starting to listen to Woody's stuff. To no small extent, down to you, Billy, because it's things like your Mermaid Avenue albums, plural. There was only one of them, I think, out at the point this was done. And also the fact that there was a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert dedicated to him. So let's have a listen to this first clip. It's about people discovering Woody through the Mermaid Avenue album. Last night or night before that, I won't say which night. Let's see what happens if we open him up and allow him to be heard, which is kind of what Billy's album did. People got to hear him, Woody's words, that have never listened to folk music in their lives and never intended to and never will buy a folk music album. And, um, you know, so that's the challenge for me is just to have the words heard by as many people. I had a guy come up here to the office one day. He was a shipping guy pack, packing up packages for us to be shipped. A young guy, and he came in with two helpers and they were just packing up stuff and he kind of looked around and he said, is this where Billy Bragg worked? And I said, he didn't know, I mean, he didn't know who I was or anything like that. I said, yeah, yeah, this is, you know. He said, that is so cool. Like, I got that album, man. That's a great album. I never heard him before, but that's a really cool album. I said, oh, you know, you started talking about it. He said, yeah, I got copies for all my friends and everything. He said, I didn't know what he got, never heard of what he got through, but Billy Bragg is really cool. The girl had told us that she was a niece of Walt Whitman. Not which niece. And it takes a night and a girl and a book of this kind a long, long time to find its way back. Um, she she sounds i mean she sounds delightful she's got a great sense of humor she laughs very easily billy tell us a bit bit about nora and knowing her i went out to dinner with her last month in cologne oh Oh, fantastic great she's in great she's in great shape oh good she lives over there half the year and in new york i mean that really sums it up in in what she was saying there her generosity with that material to invite a complete stranger in and say help yourself go in there you know, and do whatever you want to do. She kind of gave me a, a really good steer quite early on. I found a song about Paul Robeson singing at a golf course in Peekskill where there was a, the KKK turned up and there was a riot. 
And Woody Guthrie more or less didn't write tunes. He wrote lyrics to tunes that were already there. Because yeah. in that time, like Lead Belly, same thing, when you did a gig, you wanted people to be able to sing the lyrics with you, so you do a familiar tune. So they, it's not, they weren't stealing or anything. That was the folk thing then. So he'd written it to an old folk song called Jesse James, and I could tell by the, the meter of the song he'd done that. And I was so pleased I discovered that. And I played it to her, and she was like, yeah, we've got a lot of those kind of songs. <laughs> Which is true. And what, what she wanted, what she wanted us to do was to turn her father into a three-dimensional character again. Right. Because I think she, she felt very strongly that he'd been captured by academics. Yeah. And he was being put on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And he was, if anything, you know, he was an iconoclast. That was the last thing. So it was she, her encouragement, with her encouragement, that we opened the album with Walt Whitman's niece, right. in which Woody and two drunk sailors are chasing a couple of women around in, you know, some place on the waterfront in Brooklyn. Because we wanted to people to understand that this is not the Woody Guthrie that, of legend that they're familiar with. Mm-hmm. That Woody Guthrie who was a real person and did all those real things, was in the Dust Bowl. This Woody Guthrie lived in New York from 1940 until his death. So rather than imagining him in the Grapes of Wrath movie, Mm -hmm. think of him in On the Town with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly in New York in in the 1940s, chasing, you know, two sailors, chasing girls. That's the Woody Guthrie. He's going to fly on a flying saucer. He's going to try shagging Bergman. He's going to try, you know, it's a completely different kind of person from the one. But there's also the politics there as well. You know, the politics is is also there, but not in the the way that you think. It's a much more reflective. A song like Eisler on the Go, in which he's he's reflecting on people who are being called up by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Mm -hmm. He kind of lists them in the song, you know. And what's his response to that? Yeah. I don't know what I'll do. I don't mm-hmm. know what I'll do. Eisler's mm-hmm. on the come and go, which means Hans Eisler is being brought to House American and, you know, the McCarthyites to get him and then they let him go and he can't go back in the country. What am I going to do if they come after me? Yeah. He's reflecting that in there. And to find that song yeah. not only allowed me to, you know, with the help of Will Cohen, particularly with Jay Bennett, particularly on that track, to, to make a, a great song out of it, but also to reveal a bit, a little bit of Woody Guthrie that wasn't in the, the biographies and wasn't in the, you know, he's still there. Woody's still there. There's over 3,000 lyrics yep. in the archive. And until we've heard all of them, we won't really have an understanding of who Woody is, you know. That, and that was what was frustrating for Nora. She wanted someone to come in. And, and I think she chose me because much like being post-skiffle, yeah, not being of that generation. I was not of that culture of Woody's culture. I didn't grow up with him. I was. I saw him against in the context of American popular culture. So I think that aspect of me approaching it is why she couldn't get any of the big hitters to pick it up. I think they felt too intimidated by the little guy. Sure. Whereas with Nora's trust and Nora's generosity, you know, there were three thousand lyrics. If we messed up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like we were using the last couple of so- fragments. Right. There's so much stuff in there. You all could have made an album. You yeah, know, yeah. It's a, it's, there's so much stuff there. So it's, it was just a brilliant, brilliant thing to be part of. What, a, what an amazing project. Well, let's listen to the next clip because this is very much her reflection on your part in all this. Eyes on the go Eyes on the moon Brother is on the vinegar truck And I don't I mean, while he's here, like I say, Billy's alive and has a family and he has a recording career and he uh, should you know, benefit from a Grammy. He should yeah. benefit from whatever, whatever comes his way. 
Uh, he's a very, very fine man. And, but Woody doesn't need that. You know, Woody doesn't need that kind of a claim. There's nothing that he can benefit from uh, in this world in that sense. You know? But if he knows, see, his, his whole M.O., which I keep here on my wall, see, you know, this little quote, yeah. the worst thing that can happen to you is to cut yourself loose from people. And the best thing you can do is to vaccinate yourself right into the big streams and blood of the people to feel like you know the best and the worst of folks that you see everywhere, blah, blah, blah. I won't read the whole thing. Don't know what I'll do. I don't know what I'll do. Eyes was on the coming, going, I don't know what I'll do. We'll have the, the anti-vaxxers up in arms. They'll be calling us fascists. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that really is... You know, what, what Nora wanted really came to pass. We kind of rebooted her dad for a new generation. Right. We all benef- benefited from it. You know, it really is, you know, uh, Mermaid Avenue tracks are both in my top five and in Wilco's top five and Spotify, you know. Yes. And Woody's top five as well. And, you know, if you go down to Oklahoma now, where, you know, in places like Okima, where Woody is uh, revered now, he wasn't beforehand, he was rejected. Mm-hmm. But since Mermaid Avenue now, he's become revered. And there's a, there's a, a like a little, it's not a, an official thing, it's a little sort of plaza between two shops. There's a mural of him there. And, and there are paving stones with the names of Woody's songs on and a people's name to dedicate there. Wow. They've paid for the body. But the lovely, lovely thing is that the Mermaid Avenue songs are right in there with Woody's originals and there's no difference. And when I saw that, I thought, yeah, that, that's the way it should be. We've added to his canon. Yeah. And that's what it is. So uh, so I went and paid my 25 bucks and got uh, my little song there, which undoubtedly you'll already know, would probably know is all you fascists bound to lose. So I just thought that should be <laughs> that should be in among them. So I, I, pay, I paid my 25 bucks and my, my payment starts there. But, yeah, but to, you know, to, to be called upon to become part of that. I mean, because Woody, in many ways, Woody is the first alternative singer-songwriter. Yeah. He's he's a he has a he has a punk role back there, mm-hmm. you know all that way back. You know uh, this land is your land was written as an alternative to Irving Berlin's God Bless America in 1940. Right, he was he would yeah. have been in the indie charts, would he? You know, and his approach to recording, his whole attitude, the you know the painting on the guitar. Yeah, he's part of that skiffle. He's he was literally part of the skiffle thing. He was very big in the skiffle thing. You know, anywhere where people are trying to make music that says something other than. I'm great, your shit, you like my socks, to paraphrase Oasis, is the kind of key aspect of what, what Woody's doing. So to work with him, mm-hmm. to be able to – and it was almost like collaborate. It was almost because he often wrote on the bottom of the manuscript what he was thinking about that day or what the song was about. It was almost like he was faxing it wow. to us. It was just <laughs> incredible experience, you know. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting, Billy, that, you know, you are such an English singer-songwriter in one sense, but that she obviously, Nora Guthrie, obviously saw a, some similarity, this big politics man and can do a job with just a guitar. She saw me at the Woody Guthrie 90th birthday gig in Central Park right. with Pete Seeger and Arlo, and she liked the fact that I talked a lot and was joking between <laughs> the songs because Woody was, you know, infamous for that. You know, in a yeah. half hour he'd play two songs. Yeah. So she saw some connection there within yeah. that. No, well, the second part of my question was that most of your high-profile collaborations have been with Americans. 
Mm. So you've got REM, mm -hmm. Wilco, Joe Henry. Yep. Natalie Merchant. Yeah. Well, you see, I think the, the, the genre Americana is very wide and it includes people not only who play Americana but people who are inspired by American music. Yeah. You know, that kind of – in some ways, when I went to the Americana Music Awards the first time, they, they very kindly gave me an award for uh, keeping at it after all this time. And, um, <laughs> and no, oh, no, I, when I first went, I was giving an award to someone. That's right. That's what they got me into, give an award. And I went out to dinner with them the night before, and I said, can you just explain to me exactly what Americana is? Because I'm not really – and they said, well, it's basically any music or new genre of music that is based in, in American roots music. And I said – Oh, you mean like Skiffle? And they all said, what is Skiffle? <laughs> and that in some ways, Martin, that in some ways was kind of the, the spark, really. Oh, yeah. I thought if these, if these Americans are into the Beatles yeah. and they don't know what Skiffle is, it's like, they need you know, to be told. Yeah, so, I, you know, I did, uh, you know, I did want to sort of then go away and think, ah, oh, you know, I really should try and write this. It's because it's the book I wanted to read, I suppose, and it wasn't mm -hmm. there. I mean, isn't that the justification for making any art is you've got something yeah. to a perspective that you want to articulate that you don't see articulated anywhere else. I mean, yeah. whatever you do, sculpting, painting, whatever, that's that's surely the justification. And, and I certainly had a bee in a bonnet yeah. about it. I mean, when I told the bloke at Faber this is what I wanted to write about, he was the same. Skiffle was skiffle. Yeah. And this yeah. was Faber Social. I mean, it's a music <laughs> uh, uh, thing, you know, music imprint. Yeah. So I had to write. I had to write like thirty thousand words and explain it to them why it was important. And even then, I'm not. I'm not sure they they understood where it fit in. So when the book was so well received, got you know nominated for the yeah. Pandaria Music Book Prize, was their bestseller that that year. I was. I thought, yeah. okay, well, obviously, not just not yeah. That people want to need to know about this. There's something missing here. It just yeah. slotted in just nice. We need to wrap up. We, we, you've got a meeting that started 12, uh, half an hour ago. It's not really a meeting. It's a lifestyle thing. And A, I'm not a big fan of the lifestyle thing. So. <laughs> okay. no, it's kind of like, this is I'd your life. I'd talk Skiffle and, and uh, Maxson and, uh, oh, and, you know, politics. Oh, I'd much rather sit and chat with you guys. We should meet up the pub. Sounds good, yeah. And let Jasper get the rounds in and do the mics and everything while we sit and talk about <laughs> all this old shit. If you do need shit. to leave in a hurry, just let I'm us fine. know. But just, Mark, I'm tell fine. us about a few pieces you've had. Yeah, in the I'll, I'll keep this quick. Um, Lillian Roxon, writing great. the Sydney Morning Herald, 1971, sings the Stooges live. She says, Iggy, spectacular, double-jointed, grimacing lead singer of the Detroit group called the Stooges, has done it again. At Electric Circus in New York, he not only walked fearlessly into the audience, he also walked Messiah-like on top of it. I mean, it's just, it's a, I, I, I love Lily Roxon. She's such yeah, a good, yes. good writer. Um, she, no, it's got, the Iggy we know and love. It is. The guy yeah. walking, walking on. Is that the, the first? Of is that the fans. first crowd surfing mention? <laughs> oh, it's more than a surf, was it? It was almost like a Jesus-like walk <laughs> yeah, he, in the water, wasn't it? it was like... the, there are photographs, in particular, that show in Detroit, yeah, where yeah. he's literally walking on oh, the hands yeah. of the crowd. Ipsilanti, the Ipsilanti Music Festival, or something. I think was the first <laughs> time he just went out there. 
Totally yeah, someone fucked. Someone had stolen his jar of peanut butter. Yes, the <laughs> peanut butter. That's it. Yeah. Um, this week, Holly Johnson, Frank goes to Hollywood, interviewed by Sylvia Patterson, Smash Hits in 1987. They're on tour, the band are falling to pieces. And Holly says, well, I mean, I just got tired of discos and getting senselessly out of my head every night. You get tired of it. You know what I mean? I think I've outgrown them, the band. Yeah, I don't frown on what they do because I did it for years and years. But all that business is kind of, that's it, nothing more. And he says, well, I never really cared about the band. I only really cared about me anyway. I mean, I mean that. I've only ever really cared about me. So 80s. So 80s. Yeah, I know. But but it's very, it is, it's interesting. She's witnessing the band disintegrating before her eyes on tour. So it's, it's, and then lastly, this is fantastic. Amy Linton interviewing Dr. Dre for Request Magazine in 1993. And she really, really goes for him about the sexism of, particularly The Chronic, which at that point was a huge hit. And he gets, he's very defensive. He says, look, we're not singling any women out. We're not saying Janet is a bitch. Everybody knows that there are those types of women out there, and they don't like hearing shit that's real. Listen, you're acting like the whole record's talking about women, you know. Uh, it's a terrific interview. I mean, Amy does not let him off the hook. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't get away with that. Couldn't get away with that now, could you? Saying that you couldn't get away with that at all. Well, that's you, quite. I, I hope good. not. You know, Lawrence Fox could when he's yeah. well, hip hop career. There you go. And, and as for what Holly was saying, that's how I. That's why I'm a solo performer. <laughs> I only ever cared about me. Those other guys, I have no idea what they were doing. <laughs> that, 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 that's my uh, lot. There is more, but we've got to keep this, keep this short. So that, 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 that's my lot for this week. Jasper. I'll also keep it brief. And funnily enough, also my first piece is Amy Linden again. She's reviewing um, Truth Hurts, Truthfully Speaking album in 2002 for The Source. And it's an interesting little review because she says, Stevie Wonder once declared that love's in need of love today. It's a beautiful notion, but one that eludes much of the current R&B. Case in point, the solidly soulful but slightly chilly debut from, this is just pure coincidence, I swear, Dre Protégé Truth Hurts. <laughs> Ms. Hurts is an aggressive vocalist blessed with a full-throttle alto which she uses to hungrily tear into a collection of tough songs. I Love You Overloads are not on the agenda. How hard? Think freshly applied acrylic nails. Brilliant. We were listening to it yesterday. It's a pretty, pretty decent, you know, early noughties R and B record. Yeah. And the tr- the trouble is, Dre made great sounding records. I mean, those de- uh, Death Row albums, you know, the the DOC albums, absolutely sensational. You just don't want to listen to the words too much. Bitches ain't shit, but holes and tricks. Lick on these nuts and suck the dick. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, that's a, that is. I mean, it's always a danger in that when you when you're you know telling your truth. How is it going to sound down the line? You know, it's yeah, kind of like I've been, it's going to hurt. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm for, as I say, unfortunately, I've got you know the song like "There's Power in the Union" just comes around again, and uh, I feel <laughs> I feel very fortunate in that. It all amounts to nothing together we don't stand there is power. And then lastly, a review. This is a, a really great review that goes really in-depth about the socio-political surroundings of the of, of the performer, in this case, FKA Twigs, LP1, Luke Turner in The, the Quietus. Oh, Luke. FKA Twigs has managed to explore this existential condition of the performer, succeeding in accepting, diverting, turning, and owning the male gaze. At the same time, she explores the strangeness of the dom, sub, and switch that exists in all relationships, as it is on a sliding scale between old-time monogamy, the letters pages of Cosmo, and the hardest BDSM. 
that she's done this on such an uncompromising and weird album and one which is now flying so far into the mainstream is surely one of the most exciting things to happen in pop music for quite some time. And the whole review is really, really worth reading. And that, if you've never heard the record, it's a great, great record as well. LP1 by FK Twigs. I will be going home to my wife later today and telling her we need to talk about the Dom sub switch in our marriage. <laughs> yeah, it's under the, it's, it, oh, I think it's under the sink, Barney. <laughs> Get torch, mate. <laughs> Fantastic. That's it. That's from you. Perfect. Okay. Gosh. Right. Well, we have come to the very end. It's been wonderful speaking with you, Billy. You've been just a magnificent guest. It's been a lot of fun. All the best with the Roaring 40 and everything else you do in your life, career, politics, etc. Keep Um, fighting the good fight on Twitter. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Someone has to do it. I mean, the the weird thing, we didn't really touch on this, did we? You know the Rasheen Murphy thing going down? That she got in so much trouble. Yeah. She never had a top. 10 album in her life that album went to number five. Oh god there so we go. you know yeah so much for cancel culture it's just mad isn't it there's almost there's almost a a, a kind of a, a promo strategy there not, Ooh, I'm, not yeah. I'm suggesting that i'm not <laughs> suggesting that at all she, she obviously, <laughs> but you know if sure. someone out there must be looking at that and thinking oh i wonder Ooh, what I could, what you know, <laughs> we can work this to our advantage they send me out yeah, they send right. me out to say i'm going to vote tory and see if my record goes up the charts <laughs> Try it, Billy. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck right off. <laughs> I'm too old for we're that. Gonna be, we're going to be tweeting this uh, shortly <laughs> after the episode. Uh, <laughs> uh, brilliant. And we will be back in a fortnight with uh, Evelyn McDonnell to talk about, among other things, her new book about Joan Didion. So we'll be talking about the White Album the dark side of Los Angeles, the doors, etc. Joan Didion and Martin, you'll be joining us for that as well, won't you? I'm yes. Pleased to say we're looking forward to be back. Billy, again, thank you so much. So this is goodbye from me. It's goodbye from the RBP crew and it's goodbye from Billy Bragg. Bye. 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 I was 21 years when I wrote this song. I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long. People ask me, when will you grow up to be a man? But all the girls are at school already. That concludes episode 162 of the Rocks Fact Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Billy Bragg. For details about his new box set, The Roaring Forty, plus his skiffle book, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, visit his website at billybragg.co.uk. Those were Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Fact Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs>